We're going to ask you to open your Bibles with me to the book of James, James chapter 5. We're wrestling this fall with the questions that we all bring about life and faith, and we want to provide answers from the Bible, from God's Word. We wrestle with questions about justice. How can we find justice in this world? How can I give my life to something more than my own self-interest? But yet we also see the problems in pursuing justice. We look at our own stories and we realize we have been sinned against. We recognize that even within the church that has taken place. I mean, isn't the church responsible for so much injustice? So we're going to jump into this book of James this week to, to look at a, a handful of verses. James was, the, was one of the leaders in the New Testament church, the, the half-brother of Jesus, who didn't believe in Jesus until after the resurrection when Christ appeared to him. That's how 1 Corinthians describes the appearance of Christ after his resurrection to James. And like an Old Testament prophet, James turns the searchlight of God's holiness and justice upon the church. He exposes the sin of the church and then points us to our hope in the judgment of God. James chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and the spring rains? You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Let me pray that God would apply his word to our lives today. Father, as we sit under your judgment, I pray that you would let us be honest about ourselves, about our needs, about our circumstances. Lord, that we who, who come in here confident in ourselves would be, would be broken, that our self-confidence would be shattered and replaced with a biblical confidence in you. Lord, for those who, who have joined us today with more questions than they feel like they have answers, Lord, I pray that you, in your grace and mercy, in exposing our sin, would also show us the glorious comfort of the gospel, that Jesus suffered for us, that he, the innocent one, died in my place so that I might become free, free from my sins, forgiven by Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that your gospel, your grace, would be an encouragement to us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a beautiful morning on June 15th, 1904. 
The excited children gathered with their mothers for their annual end-of-the-school trip to the beach. The group, which was mostly from St. Mark's Evangelical Lutheran Church in the neighborhood of New York known as Little Germany, they piled on the steamship for their trip up the East River for a cruise that would take them to a beautiful beach, a picnic spot on Long Island's North Shore. A band is playing on deck while the children scurry about. Including the crew, there were about 1,350 people on board. But the steamship, the General Slocum, it was licensed to carry twice that many. So they're well prepared for this day. There are 2,500 life preservers on board. It had just passed its safety inspection. But as they head up river, fire is spotted on the ship. The crew leapt into action, but their fire hoses were rotten and burst as soon as they were filled with water. The wind carried the flames roaring across the deck of this steamship. Flames which one crew member later described as a blaze that could not be conquered, like trying to put out the fires of hell itself. The captain attempted to ground the ship on an island in order to facilitate rescue. But as fire enveloped the Slocum, passengers began to throw themselves overboard. Even though most, like most people in New York in that day, couldn't swim. The crew distributed life jackets, but the cork inside the life jackets had disintegrated and rotted. They were effectively anchors tied around the necks of small children. As rescuers arrived to the scene, they witnessed the horror of the flames and found few survivors. The fire and the sinking of the General Slocum was the worst, is still the worst maritime disaster in New York City. And the worst disaster in New York City until the September 11th attacks. Only 321 survived. The final death count 1,021, mostly women and children. They had the day off for the adventure. Dads were still at work, and almost all of them from the same neighborhood, many from the same church. Elementary schools were empty the next fall. The accident prompted a trial that exposed the safety failures, the fact that the the, the inspections were cursory, that no one actually tested anything. And worse than that, safety regulations of the day required that each life jacket be a certain weight, that it have a certain amount of cork in it, which makes sense, except that in order to reach that weight, owners of factories cut corners, and they slid bars of iron into the life jacket rather than use more or better cork. Even a child would understand the physics of a life jacket filled with iron. The owners of the company, the inspectors, all who provided faulty material, found not guilty. Only the captain, who had been the last man on the ship and survived with burns, only he was found guilty. An entire community destroyed, a disaster from what should have been preventable. 
And so we demand justice. When you hear this kind of story, you immediately realize that is not right. Tying a life jacket filled with iron around the neck of a child? I know what that sounds like. That sounds like murder. Now, maybe it's too late for justice in such a historical case. The survivors are all since dead. Although I admittedly chose a long historical case so that you would at least listen to the facts of the case. Because today we're so quick to hear a news story and we already know the outcome before we even hear the facts. But yet, yet we instinctively demand justice. We want greedy manufacturers to be held to account for their gross negligence. And yet, too often we feel like justice is out of reach, unattainable. It can't be grasped. Perpetrators get away with it. And it's not just in a review of historical cases. We see it in our own lives. You can scroll through the headlines and see demands for justice. But you don't even have to go that far. You just have to trace your own story. Because we have been sinned against. You have stood at times knowing that you have been sinned against and you feel like no one cares. We see rampant injustice in our community and we struggle for solutions. And so this is a moment in which the words of James, which are harsh words, can be such a comfort to us. Because James is showing us that justice, righteousness, is something that we should pursue. And it's something that we will ultimately gain. Because look back at verse 1. James is turning his attention in, in very strong language. And, and James is perhaps the, mo- perhaps the most practical of the New Testament letters. I mean, he, he doesn't spend nearly as much time on sort of lofty theology. He just jumps right into the trenches, the practice of, of how do you speak to one another? How do you act toward one another? And so he, he comes with very harsh language here in James chapter 5. In, in verse 1, we read, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. That's a dangerous warning. You who, the, the, the people who, who in verse 5 have lived on this earth, lived in this life in luxury and self-indulgence. People that everybody would look around and say, he seems to have everything. And, and even more than that, he, it must be that he has the blessing of God to have that kind of luxury and, self-com- and, and comfort. That must mean God loves him and cares for him. That's, that's even the way we sometimes jump to conclusions. But certainly would have been true in the ancient world, that riches equaled God's favor. And yet, what does James say? He, he points his finger with harshness. Now listen, weep and wail, you rich people, because the misery that is coming upon you. It's a judgment against the rich. He says, your wealth, verse 2, has rotted moths, have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver are corroded. Now, that's language familiar to us if you've read through the Bible, because that language that captures the imagery that Jesus used in his own preaching. Back in Matthew chapter 6, the sermon we call the Sermon on the Mount, this pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry, Jesus, speaking to those that would follow after him, says, 
This is Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and, and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, James is picking up on the language of Jesus, knowing that the way we use wealth reveals the depths of our own hearts. The way that you spend your money shows what matters most to you. Jesus says where your treasure is. That's where your heart is. That reveals their, your heart, your, your deepest desires. And yet, James is bringing this warning that to use wealth for selfish ends, and here it seems obvious that, that there's corruption and evil. I mean, James explicitly says that, that you have, they have hoarded wealth, they have mistreated, verse 4, the workers who have served them. And yet, God hears. Look at verse 4. The cries of the harvesters, those who have been cheated, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. God is listening. And in the courtroom of God, the, the very things that, that have been done in the names of, of selfishness will be, will be laid bare. Verse 3 says that, that their actions, the corrosion of their wealth, will testify against them. Their own lives will bring witness to their failures. And, and then in, in a horrific image in verse 5, he says that their luxury and self-indulgence has just prepared them for the slaughter. Like the animal who is being fattened up so that at the end of the season... He will feed many. That's what our riches, if you use them on yourself, that's all you're doing. You're fattening yourself up for God's judgment. Now, we might think, okay, I'm, I'm okay. I mean, who is this addressed to? Now, listen, you rich people. I mean, I'll show you my bank account, Kevin. I don't think I fall into this category. Like, I think I'm okay. And yet, and yet, as 21st century Americans, the riches we have would surely, in James's categories of poverty versus wealth, would surely place us within the category of you rich people because of the comforts and conveniences that we live for, that we have at our fingertips. Oh, now, but maybe you say, but, but, but if... But if, if we're careful, Kevin, I don't think he's really even pointing the finger at people in his church, right? I mean, if you, if you go through, he, he in verse 9 turns, or in verse 7 turns back to the church. Now, be patient then, brothers. Speaking of the brothers and sisters in the church. And so, so verse 1, where he's saying, you rich people, he's not pointing his finger at the congregation. He's pointing his finger out there at you rich people out there who are oppressing us. And so I think I'm off the hook. Except that, yes, I, I actually agree with you. I, I think James is pointing his finger at people outside the church. Except that who is he saying it to? He's saying it to the people inside 
the church. Like the prophets of the Old Testament who would speak against the nations, but who were they speaking it to? The people of God. He's, he's on the one hand showing you, yes, God sees the injustice that's out there in the world and God cares about it. But then he, he uses that rhetorically to turn the finger back on Christians. As if we could sit back and think, well, I'm, I'm not that bad. I wouldn't stuff iron bars into life jackets. But then he turns the finger back on us. But it should be a word of warning to us to examine our own lives, but more than that, it's a word of comfort. Because even in places in your life where you feel like injustice has the last word, where there is no hope of things being made right, where, where maybe the statute of limitations is already gone and there's no way for you to pursue justice, this is a word of comfort to us because God will have the last word. Even those found not guilty in a courtroom, wrongly so, in a courtroom, will on the final judgment be found guilty in God's courtroom. God hears the cries of those who have been harmed. Now, I mentioned at the beginning, though, that, that part of our concern in wrestling with this is the understanding that that even people who call themselves Christians are responsible for injustice. And maybe that's your view of, of that's the problem with religion altogether, that religions just cause violence and, 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 and harm. Or maybe even specifically, your experience in a church has, has been that. I think James agrees with you. I think James agrees that the church is responsible for lots of injustice. But his solution isn't to, isn't to absolve the church of its guilt. What is he doing here? He's turning his finger back on the church. He's pointing out the fact that even when it's overlooked by religious leaders, God will not overlook injustice. It's because Christianity offers a critique against injustice. Because sin, the rebellion against God, the harm that we cause toward other people, sin is not merely a Christian problem, although we might be the only ones calling it sin. Sin, rebellion against God, is a human problem. And so injustice infects every one of us. And so, of course, as Christians, we have to be willing to say that injustice is a problem within the church. But Christianity offers us a framework, a critique, an order to bring about true justice. Because think about it with me. From outside of a framework of belief in God, where do you start to make a claim about justice? I mean, instinctively, you know that putting iron bars in life jackets is wrong. But why? Why is it wrong? If my goal in life is to make as much money for myself and for my own comfort, then as a factory owner, isn't it a good decision, a wise decision, a smart decision to fill life jackets with iron? And it's a lot cheaper. I can get through the safety regulations much more quickly. But of course we say, no, that's not right. Why? If life is whatever I make of it, if right and wrong are whatever I make of it, then can't that factory owner just make up his own standards? And actually, aren't those standards we are, we're pretty close to agreeing with? 
that I should make as much money and be as happy and as comfortable as I can be? And that's sometimes the way we make our own decisions. See, but instinctively we know that it's wrong because we are made by God in God's image, and so we know that the child around whose neck that life jacket will be placed has eternal value. But that only makes sense from a Christian point of view. Christianity is actually offering us a starting point for critique of injustice. And it makes sense of that, that, that welling up within us, that revulsion against injustice when we see it. But more than that, Christianity offers a solution. I mean, a, a, a practical solution for how we live in the midst of life, but ultimately a, a permanent solution. There's a practical solution here. Look at verse 7. In the face of suffering, James says, be patient then, brothers. Be patient and endure. Yes, he's not saying just, just you know, roll out the mat and let people trample all over you. No, the, the, the framework we have as Christians that God is a holy God, God is a God of justice, gives us a starting point for pursuing justice. But what he says is be patient. Why? Verse 7, until the Lord's coming. Or verse 8, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Verse 9, we are not to grumble or complain because the judge is standing at the door. So God will ultimately bring a solution to the injustice we see, or even the injustice we don't see. He will bring a solution to the injustice that we have written off as, well, it's just part of living in this world. That's to be expected. He will bring injustice to the, the things we've not even been able to speak out loud that you have never told anyone. God, the judge, is standing at the door. The judgment against the wealthy who were self-indulgent is verse 6, that they condemned and murdered innocent men. How do the apostles summarize the life and ministry of Jesus? Repeatedly throughout their preaching, they point to Jesus who was innocent and yet wrongly condemned. Jesus, who was righteous and yet died in the place of the unrighteous. And not merely because a human tribunal had sought injustice, but because God himself willingly placed his son, Jesus, in the position of being the victim of injustice, a willing, sacrificial victim. Jesus is the one condemned and murdered. Why? Because of my sin because of my rebellion, because of my self-righteous indulgence, because of my pursuit of comfort and convenience, because I have lied and pursued my own ends, Jesus died for me. See, God not only promises that, that there is coming a final day of judgment, he has intervened here and now. God understands injustice. And we're told in the book of James, back in chapter 4, that God is the one who gives grace to us. That God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so what is he asking us to do today? To not merely to point our fingers at, at people we think are richer than we are, or worse than we are, 
but to humble ourselves so that we, admitting our sin, might find God's grace. Because without God's grace, we, each of us, would be condemned. And without God's justice, each of us would remain oppressed without hope of the world being made right. So we only know what justice is based on God's perfect moral standard. And because of God's pursuit of justice, then we can pursue justice in the name of Jesus. We can love and serve others. His standards, his pursuit of justice means our lives can, can pursue what matters most to God. And so for some of us, how could we as a church show God's justice? It means simply we have to be serving others. Rather than being self-indulgent, rather than living in luxury, rather than spending on ourselves, we're going to give generously. The, the, the tithes and offerings that we give every week are a pursuit of God's power and might and justice so that the gospel would go forth, so that communities would be transformed. And so pursue justice in big ways. If you're in a position of power or authority, use your power to serve others. If you serve in, in the big systems of the world, in the education systems, in the, in the court systems, then pursue your position to change the unjust systems and pursue justice in personal ways. Open your home to a vulnerable child who without your love would be ground up by the system. Serve alongside our neighbors at the Mary Campbell Center, sharing gospel hope with neighbors in need. Tutor a child after school with Urban Promise. You want justice? Then pursue justice. Help your neighbor in a time of need. See, we are motivated to pursue justice because we have a standard of justice. God himself is holy. We are motivated to pursue justice because we know that God cares for the oppressed. He hears their cries. We are motivated to pursue justice in this life because we know that ultimately God is the God of justice. Rachel Denhollander was the first to file criminal complaints against serial sex abuser Larry Nasser, and that made her the last to speak at his sentencing and trial. The judge allowed nearly 100 victims to stand and speak and forced Larry Nasser to hear what he had done. Rachel was the last to speak. Her words broadcast on the news. You've heard me talk about this before. Her words of hope and forgiveness. But reflecting back on her experience in an interview, Rachel says, it was a real struggle during that time to hold on to the identity I have in Christ. I wasn't bitter or angry. I pitied who Larry had become. Larry had to sit in the courtroom day after day listening to all the terrible things he had done. And then Rachel asks this profound question. What if I was sitting in that chair? What if I had to hear a list of everything I had done, every nasty, mean thought or word or action, the vindictive things I've done? What if I had to sit there and hear the pain that I have caused? And that's when she says that through Christ, 
God not only brings justice, but he loves us enough to take justice upon himself. We have a God. This is what she says. We have a God who says, this is evil and it matters, and I will come back and deal with it. She says, the justice of God was the greatest comfort to me as an abuse victim. The justice of God offers us a path forward. We can be a people who pursue justice. And the grace of God offers us true hope. Jesus endured injustice on my behalf. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that as we come to this table, you would provide comfort and blessing to us. Lord, we ask that we would hear your gospel. We would see it displayed in front of us. Lord, that in the picture of the cross, the death of Jesus, we would see the forgiveness of sins. Father, I ask that you would offer comfort to us, that even now you would give us faith to believe. Lord, may the picture of the gospel be hope for us. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.